Welcome to the Artist Plunge podcast, a podcast exploring the curious relationship between artists and the other professions, day jobs, or past experiences that have allowed them to plunge into the art they create. I'm your host, Christy Darnell Batani. If today is Tuesday, it must be yellow. And I'm loving the blue I'm hearing in this song, aren't you? Wait, you don't hear color in music? Well, keep listening, and you will hear how Scottish abstract painter and professional orchestral musician Kirsty Matheson experiences the neurological condition synesthesia to create her expressive paintings of classical music. This is a fascinating conversation, dipping in and out of music, painting, and 100-day challenges. So grab your double bass or cello, and let's head to Glasgow to see what Kirsty is doing in the studio today. Was that the sound? Yep. Do it again. <sighs> Something is being pulled. Something is... Kirsty has a giant rubber band she's going to put around <laughs> all of her paper. I don't know, Kirsty. What is that sound? It's a cup of tea. Oh. <laughs> well, no wonder it was being so quiet and civilized. <laughs> and what role does a cup of tea play in your art practice, Kirsty? Well, I just had the thought when uh, I had uh, two glorious hours in the studio today and I got there and um Quite an important thing is to put the kettle on, um, and it's not just because I'm British, but uh, just have a cup of tea, kind of take stock of things. And often when I'm, you know, down that cul-de-sac where, like, I, I, it's a dead end and I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just like, okay, cup of tea and sit around and take stock. So I thought it's, it's quite actually an important part of my process. And so when you say studio... Because here's a first big question I have is studio, are there paints in there or is there a double bass uh, instrument in there? Oh, no, there's there's definitely not an instrument in there. Everything I do with music wise is through my headphones with uh, recordings. So um, I'm never playing with the, the whole playing part is when I actually play with a full orchestra and I definitely don't have, I have a big studio but I don't have it's not that big <laughs> for an entire orchestra and I can't really afford to pay all my colleagues to come um, <laughs> so uh, no it's it's paints it's it's just like your normal kind of artist studio of uh, you know mess <laughs> Yeah. Well, for our listeners who don't know, Christy is both an established painter and an orchestral bass player. And so not only do you have a foot in both of those creative worlds, but you've actually found a way to combine them. And I would love for you to talk about, um, maybe before we talk about the process of painting music, um, how did you get started with that? Where did that idea come from? Well, it started back when I was uh, 17 and at high school and I went to a specialist music high school and my roommate at the time was an incredible pianist and she played a 
recital where she played a piece by Debussy that so inspired me that I went straight to the art department and I um, painted a great big painting, six feet by four feet. Oh, my goodness. uh, Of the Debussy piece. Yeah. And this is before iPhones and all of that stuff. So it was totally from memory. I had no recording of it. It was just purely my reaction to it. And I nearly went to art college instead of music college. Uh, Well, actually, I ended up doing an English degree. Long story. But... um, yeah, so like art, I was as much doing art as I was music um, at school. And so the, it just kind of made sense at the time and it, the inspiration just took took a hold of me. And then when um, in 2021, I decided to do a 100-day project, I thought, oh, be really, I wonder if it's actually possible to paint music. And so I <laughs> crazily... So I'll do a hundred different pieces of music in a hundred days. Oh my goodness! Which sounds fine, except my husband was like, "If we'd ended up with a hundred paintings, what would have happened?" So you're in high school now. When I was in high school, and if I got a great creative idea, I might have drawn um, a cartoon. A six foot painting was not something I would have instantly gone to. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think drove you to do that? Uh, yes, it's not the normal thing to go and paint a six foot by four foot um, oil painting. Um, but <laughs> right. the um, specialist music high school that I went to had an amazing art department. Uh, my art teacher was uh, this old battle axe called Mrs. Mack. And she actually had, <laughs> there a lot of artists went through her um, tuition and I mean, even still, most of what I think of in composition terms and uh, it, just everything to do with art, she's still in the back of my head. She was quite incredible. And actually, some of her former students who are big, important artists now, uh, one of them, I heard Justin Mortimer doing a podcast and all he could do was talk about Mrs. Mack instead of going to the Slade <laughs> or going, you know, going to all these fancy art uh, you know, education establishments he's been at, all he can talk about is still Mrs. Mack. She was that influential. So I think I was, it was, I mean, I raised eyebrows when people came in on Monday morning and found this massive painting. (laughs) But at the same time, it was kind of normal. And it was a boarding school that I was at. So I had time to do that. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. It's funny you say that about Mrs. Mack. I have Sylvia that's in my head and will never... Be gone from there. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but maybe even before we get into some of the the visual art creating. So back at, in school at that time, were you playing double bass then? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was, um, yeah, I was a specialist musician. In fact, um, there were people in the music department didn't realize that I was an artist. And the people in the art department didn't really know that I was a specialist musician. So I quite liked that kind of juggling between the two and having you know, kind of different facets to my identity. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think drew you to that instrument? Oh, oh, that, that that's a long story. Um, I, I didn't want to play it. Uh, I was playing the cello, and the only reason I was playing the cello is because my cello teacher came when I was seven and played for my class at school, and he said the word pizzicato, and I thought, oh, that's cool. 
I want to do that word. <laughs> Nothing to do with the cello or music. Just that word is what stu- <laughs> stuck for me. And um, there were little, there was little kind of tests and stuff. And he wheedled down the people to two, and it was me and this other boy. And I loved my cello. I I, I was like about three books ahead of where I should have been, and you know, etc. But my cello teacher said, "I want you to try bass," and I was like, "No, I don't want to try bass." And he was like, "Look." It was October, and he said, you know, try bass, and if you hate it that much, you can go back to cello after Christmas. So I was like, okay. And I tried it, and basically it was the right instrument for me, and I forgot what a cello was very quickly, and um, I've never stopped playing since, so that's why. Well, for those of us who are sort of music novices, what's... Well, there's obviously a size difference. What's the difference between a double bass and a cello? Well, yeah, there is the size difference, which is considerable. Um, uh, in fact, it's considerable in that when I uh, first played a bass, I looked down at the bridge and thought, oh my goodness, my cello bridge would fit underneath this bridge, which it was. And I was oh. like, how am I going to play this great big thing with massive great big strings? Um, but on top of that, uh, the difference is that a cello ha- is tuned in fifths, a double bass is tuned in fourths. Um, double bass uh, is not so much of a solo instrument, uh, much more about uh, orchestral playing and also, you know, different groups, bands and uh, jazz and, you know, all sorts of that yeah. kind of stuff. So, yeah. Most listeners may be like me and wonder, like, well, if, when you hear reference a bass, they think of a bass guitar. Are those two instruments similar at all? Yeah, a bass guitar has got exactly the same strings as a double bass. It's just it's played um, at a different angle. Um, but and so a lot, a lot of, um, you know, classical bass players or like jazz bass players, upright bass players, they play electric bass too, but I don't um, because... I've never had an electric bass teacher and I just never got into it. So I'd rather leave it to the guys that can do it really well. Yeah, well, actually, it's interesting you just said guys, because I know while there have been some recognizable female bass guitarists, apart from maybe Esperanza Spalding in the U.S., I don't see many women's names associated with double bass. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So what's that like to be <laughs> oh, yeah. in a predominantly male-dominated field? Yeah, well, it, it's something, I mean, I would say we're used to it because that's what we have, well, certainly in, in my generation, that's just what we've been living with. But, uh, I mean, in the US, the um, there are two female principals of, um, you know, established big orchestras. One's in Indianapolis, Rufin, and uh, there's Kristen Bruya is in um, Minnesota. Um, but outside of that, there are very few female bass players in major symphony orchestras in the US um, and certainly they're the only two principals. Uh, in the UK we have a very similar situation um, and it, it there seems to be quite a lot at college level but it's making that step into into the job um and certainly i mean it's a it's a very very tough profession um preparing for an audition takes a lot of time and you know we if if you then have um you know children and and those kind of commitments then it 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 affects you and i i think that's there's all those kind of issues as well as there's just 
prejudice. And I've, I mean, I've heard comments my entire career. Um, um, I mean, not just directed at me, but just in general. And, um, you know, it, it it's getting better, but it's got a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, that's a nice segue. So you were talking about, so you finished A-levels and you finished school. What was your plan and maybe what actually happened? Well, I didn't have a plan. I was kind of stumped (laughs) because I didn't know whether to go to music college, to art college, to do an English degree, or actually to go to drama college. (laughs) (laughs) Nice narrowing it down there, yeah. (laughs) I know. I had a a drama um, teacher and my drama coach actually called me up and said, I I think you should go to drama college. I was like, ah, don't add something to my plate. Um, So I thought... um, the one thing that I could do that wouldn't close off any of those options would be to do an English degree. So I went to Edinburgh University and I did an English degree. Um, and then at the end of that time, I found I had still been, I freelanced um, in Scotland uh, and I did lots of um, uh, like youth orchestra um, and youth courses. Um, I went to Aspen Music Festival um, and actually, when I went to Aspen, um, I met my teacher there uh, and he offered me a full scholarship to do my master's in Cincinnati. And I went to America and I stayed there for 12 years. Um, so I studied there and I worked there too. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so I had a job. The last thing I did was I had a job with the orchestra in New Orleans um, called the Louisiana Philharmonic. And um, then I got pregnant and um, we decided to, um, well, we moved to uh, Austin and then my husband got a job in Glasgow and we moved to Scotland. So that's that's the, the quick version. If you were in Austin, we could have been mates. I wish you hadn't gone. <laughs> um, I liked Austin. We, I mean, we did. We liked Austin a lot and um, we were there in... Uh, 2009 to 2011. Yeah, we actually did overlap for a couple years. So you're living in the U.S. Yeah. and you're working regularly, uh, performing in the music world. Is visual art part of your life at that time? Um, well, it's always been kind of there and about, but I think probably the one time it was more significantly there was when I lived in New Orleans, because that city is just you can't help but be affected by it and you know yeah. all the sights and sounds and colors and everything so i did quite a quite a bit of acrylic painting um during that time and, and i actually sold a few for 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 tiny little pennies um mainly yeah. to friends but uh it's such a good feeling though right like you know some it, that validation is exciting it, it you know what it was it was weird it's where i know that at that point i was definitely an amateur artist from the perspective of i didn't want to give them away <laughs> i didn't yeah. want to keep them all whereas now i'm like you know even something you know i do a painting that i really love i'm just like great it's sold <laughs> you know it's like yeah and I'm quite happy and, and I'm not happy until it's in some the person who's bought its hands so it's it it feels you know I'm, I'm a professional now yeah it's funny because people ask that a lot you know well doesn't it make you sad and it's like 
No, I mean, I'm happy when it goes to a good place. And I'm really happy when I can tell someone really resonates with it. But you know, what's on my mind is what's on the wall in progress. And once it's deemed done, it's, it's out of my mind. Yeah, Yeah. which is actually the same as as performing as a musician. Mm. How so? um, Because, well, we, we play a concert. And you know, you sometimes do great concerts. And sometimes you do ones you're maybe not so happy with, but you just let them go like immediately they're just they're they're done and and they're gone i've always wondered you know so you put in all of those hours as a musician rehearsing practicing practicing on your own practicing as a group and then the performance itself may last anywhere from five minutes to two hours if you're really lucky like how does that feel um normal (laughs) I guess it's just I've been doing it my whole life um it's just what we do it's it's you you're very much in the moment and you know it it, well David Bowie said um you know I don't know if this is true but the the legend goes that he he said that he was nearly became an electrician um instead of a musician and he said, maybe I would have been happier as a as an electrician because I wouldn't have had the incredible highs and incredible lows. And that's yeah. that is part of it. You you have an amazing concert that you do, and it's great and it's brilliant. You come off it and you're high. You know you're riding that high and it's great. And then you're like, oh, but I want it to happen again. <laughs> and if it doesn't happen for a while, then you start to go, ah, oh, it's not happening it's not working it's not you know so it it it, it's wonderful and at the same time it has its downsides too yeah and I'm wondering like so in visual art in painting do you experience any similar high um yeah but it's different because it it's there it's static it doesn't go away I think the one thing I find that's different being a professional artist is the fact that that they're gone. So they're not in my vicinity once they're bought. So I have that thing where if I see them again and not mm-hmm. just an image, you know, on, on my screen, uh, a photograph or anything, but when I actually physically see the actual work again, it's so interesting that relationship is still there. So it's not like, you know, the amazing you know, gigs that I've done in my life, I have to just remember. I don't have a record of them. Um, whereas there's actually still that physical painting, which is is really interesting. It's like revisiting an old friend and, you know, where you might have loved them at one point, when you see them again, you might go, oh, actually, I've moved on from you. <laughs> it's probably a bit like yeah. relationships or something. Yeah, it is. It is like a relationship. I mean, it is quite an interesting experience to sort of, serendipitously encounter one of your pieces you know yeah. not intending to and there is that moment I remember one time I was just like oh that that's quite nice and I'm like oh crap that's mine you know <laughs> I'm like that's so interesting like but um <laughs> well I'm curious so when you were painting so you're still in the states what what was the subject matter was it abstract or what was your work like then oh yeah it was abstract and also in New Orleans it was painting the the houses um, mm. And things that were around, um, and I do sketches, and you know, I, I, if if I had the opportunity, I 
would go to life drawing. Um, I can't go to life drawing in Glasgow at the moment because my um, sons are not old enough yet to just be left on their own and I'm too cheap to pay for a sitter for... <laughs> <laughs> for me just to go to life drawing but um yeah. you know I, I i definitely see that life drawings like the artist's gym you know um and that's where we go to work out and i'm i'm I, i'm not wishing that my children grow up too fast but i'm looking forward to, at the same time to actually the time when i can be like bye boys i'm going i'm going to life drawing um, right so Right. Well, so at what point you mentioned the 100 day challenge, was that the first time you revisited the idea of painting music, painting what you hear? Yeah, it was. And it was it was kind of a crazy (laughs) proposal, really, that I didn't really think through. Because (laughs) aren't those the best ones? (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, I, I was doing actual painting every day for 100 days. And I didn't think of where am I going to put all those paintings? And I hadn't thought about selling them or marketing them or anything. It was purely for me. And it was the second painting that I did, which was um, the Overture to Dido and Aeneas by Purcell. And I got an email from the wife of one of the professors at Glasgow University, um, John Butt, who also happens to be the music director of the Dunedin Consort, which is the Baroque Ensemble um, based in Scotland, who are very, very good. And she wanted to buy it. (laughs) And she was asking how much it was. So I did a a dance around the kitchen going, oh my goodness, I can't believe she wants to buy it. Oh my goodness, what is going on? And I thought, oh, I haven't even contemplated or thought about prices or anything like that so I came up with a price and it sold and I started getting a following on Twitter and Instagram and uh, it started it was nuts Uh, people started fighting over them to where I would post them at eight o'clock in the evening and a lot of them would sell within a minute Um, that's amazing yeah I would have to actually use the timestamp on my phone to determine who had asked for it first. And I would have to disappoint people, which I hated doing. You know, someone says they want to buy your painting. You want to say, yes, that's wonderful. But if you have to keep going, oh, I'm sorry, it's already sold. Um, It's not very, uh, not quite, it, it it took the buzz off the selling part of it um but yeah it was it was nuts and um I was interviewed on Radio Scotland um twice halfway through and then um at the end of it and I also was interviewed for BBC Radio 3 um by Tom Service once I'd done all of them um and yeah it was it was insane every they all sold by by number 100 all had sold and for the 100 one I actually put a silly price on it because I thought I'd quite like to keep this one you know Ah. it'd be nice to have it as a as a memento and whatever and it sold and And in fact there were three people trying to buy it (gasps) so this isn't uh, sort of in the weeds but on the actual selling component did you have an online website or so you would post them on Instagram someone says I want it how would Mm -hmm. how did it actually work how did you have them either how did you get the painting to them and how did the money get to you yeah, so I posted them. I tried to post them at the same time on Twitter and Instagram, and mm. and actually Facebook as well, but mainly Instagram and Twitter. And it was basically whoever 
contacted me first, which was insane because I had to check my email, my messages on Twitter and my messages on Instagram. And it was like pretty nuts, actually, because I didn't expect it to happen. So I didn't have the best system. Um, But somebody would say, so whoever, and I was very clear, it was first come, first served. And some people managed to get more than one. And as it was getting later through the the project, I I thought it was unfair if somebody was getting more than one when there were all these other people wanting them. So I I made the, the thing of like, it's first come, first serve. But if you've already got one, I will give preference to somebody who hasn't got yeah. one. Um, nice. and And did it that way. Um, and basically, I would just get their email and I would email them an invoice and they would pay me. Um, and uh, I had a couple that I did via PayPal, but mainly it was bank transfer. Mm-hmm. And I would, you know, I'd have to, obviously they were made that day. So I would then have to um, do an isolation coat and varnish them. And I also processed them all for print. So I would take them to my print guy to get photographed. Smart. And yeah. then um, I uh, and then I would s- just send them to them. Um, and it all fortunately worked out great and everyone got their paintings and you know the, there was only one hiccup where one of them got damaged but it got mm. it was insured and tracked so and it fortunately the bit that got damaged was a bit that didn't actually have wasn't of the actual painting it was the the side of it um and so it was it was fine but we got um compensation and stuff but yeah that was my experience that's amazing. And it, so now as from an artist perspective, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I could keep that up for 100 days. So surely <laughs> at some point you got stuck. Like, oh, like, what am I doing today? Like, yeah, what would you do um, when you got stuck? Well, because it was partly it was because it was lockdown um, mm-hmm. and COVID. It, I had the time, you know, it wasn't like I wasn't having being asked to go and play in orchestras and stuff all the time while I was doing this. So I actually, it, it from that perspective, it was slightly easier. But I didn't have an art studio. I was just painting literally in our hallway with no window, nothing, just mm. like me and an easel in our hallway. Um, uh, but yes, I would say about just over halfway through, it, it, what, what, got, what I was stuck with was what music to paint. Yeah. Um, it wasn't it wasn't the painting part that was that was proving an issue. It was me trying to decide what was the next piece that I was going to paint. So when I got to that stage, I I just I had grown a following on Instagram and Twitter, so I just put it out on both platforms and said, "Give me some ideas." Oh, that's and, genius! And they did, and they did, and I it then kind of I would go, "Yeah, I want to paint that one." No, I don't want to paint that one, and. And it it got me going again, and um, were they yeah. all classical pieces? Yeah. So yeah. the, the um, you know I I can and I have painted all sorts of uh, genres, but the the thing for me is what I didn't realize, which I only now fully realize, is that my experience of going to music college and my entire career as an orchestral musician has actually been preparing me for my art career, which is mm. feels bizarre. Because if I'd gone to art college, even if I'd wanted to paint music, I would not be as good at it as I am now because I wouldn't be as good at listening. 
Um, it's like I, well, for example, I'm currently painting Brahms' Fourth Symphony, and I'm I've chosen to do that because last week I was playing Brahms' Fourth Symphony, and it, it's almost like I'm a plain air painter. I mean, I don't literally have the easel and the paints and everything in orchestra with me, although there's a trombonist in one of the orchestras that I play with who thinks I do, and he keeps coming up to me and going, where's your paints? Where's your paints? I'm like, ha-ha. I, I see a performance art opportunity, uh, so I don't no. know. Don't rule it out. No, no, I will rule it out because cause I've, I've had this asked of me, and the reason that I will never paint live to music is that that would be the equivalent of a musician practicing in, as a performance or mm-hmm. play or sight reading a piece as a performance. Like yeah. it, it needs to be a, it needs to be the finished product and I need the kind of space and the permission to go to ugly places <laughs> and yeah. not be judged oh, like for that. it, you know? Yeah, I um, like that. Uh, that. That's my, well, it, it's partly from Maggie Hamlin, um, said it in a documentary about her and her work she said no one is ever going to see me paint it would be like somebody watching me have sex and I don't want people mm-hmm. to see my ugly bits <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I think Permission she's totally to go right to the ugly places I like that though that's yeah that's a good way to yeah. think of it that's a very personal thing yeah yeah well, I'd love to talk about that process for you because um, I mean wh- what does it feel like so when you you've selected a piece of music how do you start do you do you just think about the piece? Do you start <laughs> seeing colors? What do you start to see or do? Well, what what I have, um, so I I have a form of synesthesia. Yeah. Um, so and synesthesia- actually, you know what, let's stop real quick because uh, not everyone yep. may be familiar with synesthesia. So yeah. uh, how do you describe it? So synesthesia is the kind of crossover of senses. So mm-hmm. when you hear music, you see color. Um, some mm-hmm. people have it where they um, will hear sounds and they will have tastes um, or they will taste colours, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a crossover of senses. And yeah. I have it with um, I have it with days of the week. So for this one's very common for a lot of people. I have different colours for the days of the week. I have different colours for numbers, for letters, for names. I have it for people's voices. Um, so uh, so for names? today mean, is Tuesday. What, it, what color is Tuesday? Tuesday is like yellow ochre. And, What's Saturday? Um, Saturday's black. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, I, might, I could do this Monday's, for seven days. <laughs> <laughs> Sunday, Sunday's yellow. I can rattle through them. Monday's blue. Uh, Wednesday's green. Thursday is kind of gray, silver. And Friday is red. Um, and my youngest son, he has it for days of the week too, and his are completely different colours, and we have a big argument because he's like, Monday is brown. I'm like, no, Monday can't be brown if it's blue. It's the equivalent of somebody telling you that the grass isn't green, it's purple. Mm. And you're just like, Mm. how can that possibly be? So I also have it for music. I don't have it for um, direct pitches so I it's not like I hear an A and immediately see red mm-hmm. um, I, I have it more generalized even though I don't have perfect pitch um, to where normally when a piece is in A major for example I normally see quite a lot of red mm-hmm. or if it's in C major I see a lot of yellow but I don't have perfect pitch. How old were you when you started to realize that there was a relationship between color and, and sound to you? 
Um, I didn't properly really acknowledge it until I did the 100 Day Project. Interesting. Not even when I did the Debussy piece. It's I knew that it was there, but I wasn't aware of it, yeah. which is nuts. It's like it's like I knew that the colours, that the days of the week had colours, but it's like that was just normal. Right. So I didn't think anything of it. Right. And it's the same with music. But um, what I can do with my synesthesia is I can kind of open a little door in my head and have a look or I can close it, yeah. which for me is really important so that when I'm in orchestra, I'm not distracted. Uh, I have a colleague who's got... Um, really advanced synesthesia for like every note he sees a colour, wow. every chord he see, sees colours. He's not an artist, he's he's a musician, a very, very good musician and an orchestral musician. And I'm just like, how does he go to work? Yeah. Because he just must be sat there with this stuff like Barrage. launching at him all the time. Yeah. 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 Um, so I don't have that, thank goodness. But um, so my process with painting is that um, some of it, a bit like how I'd be like, well, yeah, Monday's blue. Um, I'll be listening to Brahms and I'll just, a, a specific piece of, well, let's take actually um, uh, Schubert's Ninth Symphony, which is in C major. Um, for me, there's loads of that piece that has got like yellow all the way through it. And it just has. And so I know that I'm going in to paint it knowing that yellow is going to be predominantly there but the interesting thing about for me painting music is that when I actually have the headphones on and I'm physically putting the paint on the canvas it changes Mm -hmm. in that I I will think oh I think that this will be yellow but it's only going to be confirmed when I actually put it down while I'm listening while you're listening Uh, so occasionally it doesn't work. Occasionally, the music, and it's almost like the music's got its own personality, and it'll turn around to me and go, No, mm-hmm. don't you dare put pink in this. There's no pink in me. And I go, Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, and some, some of them yell their colors at me. And some of them are want to be discovered, so it just it just depends. Do you feel like a conductor, like you're trying to combine all these different voices that are talking to you? Um, not really. Um, but I know that conductors, I think, ha- certainly um, seem to really get what what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think probably um, for uh, you know, if you look at the groups of musicians, the types of musicians, I think it's conductors and composers yeah. really that are are most kind of like yeah, I totally get that. Although. I sh- I shouldn't play down how much my other colleagues do too because you know a, a lot of people do and it's really interesting when I have colleagues who'll be like I'm really sorry but I disagree with how you've painted you know <laughs> uh, Stravinsky's Right of Spring and I'm like no that's great yeah <laughs> but they f- they think that I'm going to be insulted and I'm like no it, like this is just how I see it yeah. I'm presuming that you will see it differently. Yeah. Um, and so I'm I'm interested that if my work sparks that kind of discussion and gets people thinking and listening in a different way. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I when I was preparing for this, I looked back and um, they estimate about four percent of the population experiences synesthesia. But of that four percent, there are some incredible. Um, artists in particular, you know, um, Franz Luce, uh, Jean Sibelius, Van Gogh, David Hockney, Duke Ellington, and yep. maybe, I mean, perhaps one of the best known is Kandinsky. And 
I don't know if you admire his work or not, but it certainly has a similar sort of vibrancy and color. And um, apparently he was a a cello, a cellist as well. So I wonder, sometimes I wonder if there's a string. Have you ever noticed are more people with string players um, experience color? Synesthetes. Yeah. 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 Um, no, the um, well, Miles Davis mm-hmm. was a, a had synesthesia, yeah. and um, obviously he's trumpet. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's necessarily uh, instrument focused. But Kandinsky is really interesting because Kandinsky's paintings are not of actual music. Mm. You know, they are like you know composition number two or whatever. So it's, I think he was probably listening and thinking how the music was affecting him, you know, visually, but he's not actually doing what I'm doing. He's not trying to, because as far as I see my work, it's like I'm a still life painter. Mm -hmm. It's just that my object is oral and it's not visual. And for me, um, that's why like the music absolutely rules. It's like, you know, if, if I'm going to put a wrong color in for what the music's, telling me to do then it has to be for some very very good reason or I just have to not do it because that's what the music's asking of me so um you know it's just like as I explained um in fact I've written a blog post about this how like Cezanne's um apples Mm -hmm. you know he paints those apples but you can't eat those apples Mm -hmm. but you know they're apples you can't so if you see a painting of mind that's of Beethoven's Third Symphony. You can't hear Beethoven's Third Symphony from that, but it is of Beethoven's Third Symphony, just like those apples are paintings of apples. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how I see what I do. But yes, um, well, and the Kandinsky thing is, is so interesting because, you know, music for him was that thing that allowed him to go full abstract because you know even opera is where it gets slightly complicated because there's actual specific story and there's text that leads you but generally you know if you listen to Mozart's uh, 40th symphony or you listen to um, Stravinsky Rite of Spring they're very very different pieces of music but they they're abstract and it doesn't matter if the composer had intended whatever he'd intended, like, you know, Strauss, um, Ein Heldenleben is a, a hero's story and there's an actual story with it. Well, if you don't know the story, you can't tell that from listening to the music yeah. because the music is abstract. Um, and it's also one of the really interesting things that happens with my art is that um, you've got... Mozart 40 like someone and this this is a fault of my profession and the classical music world that there has been these barriers put up where people think that they're supposed to know things Mm. about Mozart before they listen to Mozart 40 Mm -hmm. you know they're supposed to you know they feel like it's it it, you know it's all about knowing you know things about the piece structurally or things about Mozart and history. and You don't need to know that. When people ask me, like, you know, uh, who do you think classical music's for? I'm like, people with ears. <laughs> Literally, that's it. People with ears, just the same as modern art, is for people with eyes. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you 
It's, but I do love, I've noticed on your Instagram, you will share the history of a piece of music. So perhaps those who yeah. don't have that experience and yeah. or don't know how to connect initially with it, I really love how you share that because it, it gives everyone a chance to enter it and, and to experience and then oh, maybe totally. go experience the music if they haven't already. Yeah, so that's the thing that, and I, I found this in the 100 Days, is, is the number of people that said to me, I was too intimidated to listen to Mozart 40, but I saw your painting of it and I immediately went and listened. Yeah. And I was just like, so there was there was no hesitation. There was no like, oh, maybe I need to learn more. It was just like straight away, they would just go and listen, yeah. which I think is is amazing. That's really nice. And I actually had musicians doing it the other way mm. who, who would go, oh, I never understood like abstract art, but now I get oh, it. Oh, that's fun. That's nice. Well, and I think that also yeah. helps explain, I know you've talked a little bit, like, so if, if you were standing in a gallery looking at all your works, there's there's a pretty varied stylistic body of work there. <laughs> and I mean, maybe yeah. you can talk about that, but I, I know that you, it's because um, each one is different. Each piece is different, but maybe you can talk yeah. a little about that. Yeah. yeah, well, that's the thing that, um, so even though I have a synesthetic relationship with music i'm i'm so glad that i don't have it direct with each individual pitch mm. because uh, and you know otherwise you know i would hear a name put down some red hear a c put down some yellow like it, the painting would end up brown aside from anything else mm-hmm. but it, it would just be kind I, I actually wonder if it would limit my kind of hearing and also uh, my kind of uh, artistic relationship with with the music, um, because for me, my synesthesia affects me with rhythm, um, with orchestration, um, and with style. And because I've been to music college, because I'm a professional musician, I am trained in the art of listening. Um, I, you know, anyone can hear, but but to listen takes effort and attention. And musicians, because of the nature of what we do, we listen in in a pretty, you know, detailed way. Um, and so the um, the way that um, I, my style, it's not really one style. In fact, I don't even see it as my style. I see them as the composer's style. Yeah. And um, I'm sure that some artists would look at all of my stuff and just go, oh, my goodness, this is nuts. You know, you can't possibly put those paintings next to each other. And I understand why they're seeing it that way, because we see peripherally, but we don't hear peripherally. Yeah. So it's not as obvious. But if 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 I painted um, a, a piece by Miles Davis, it cannot possibly look the same as a Haydn symphony. Yeah. And they don't, because they do not sound the same. They are so very different. And if, if they looked the same, then I would expect everyone, and particularly my colleagues, <laughs> to be, you're, this is a scam, Kirsty. You're not, you're not actually doing this. This is just a, a thing that you're saying. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's, it's very, very much exactly what, what is there. So, yeah, it's, it's this. And, and I've even got some people who are like, I really like your Shostakovich style, but I don't like your Mozart style, or like I yeah. really like yeah. you know, one or not the other. Have you ever asked? Um, do they prefer that music over the other? Like, is there a relationship um, to the pieces? The I haven't music? actually. It'd be interesting. Yeah, I should ask. Yeah, I won- yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite yeah. composer or but, um, someone you particularly like to use? Oh, I've 
you know, it's like asking what your favourite book is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's one of those difficult kind of questions. And I would say it varies. And one of the things that certainly, and I know this is obviously happening in the art world, um, which is really great. I think maybe in the way in the art world, it's maybe happening a bit more than the music world right now. But um, uh, the female composers, mm. I was aghast doing the 100 day project when I realised I had done one by the yeah. time I got to halfway. And then I did another, but she was a contemporary, uh, contemporary composer. And I realised there's all these female composers that I don't actually know very well at all. Yeah. Um, I'm actually currently working on a commission for um, of songs um, by uh, Fanny Hensel, mm. who was um, uh, Felix Mend- Mendelssohn's yeah. sister. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I, I there are great big gaps in my knowledge, um, even though because because orchestras haven't been playing them yeah. and don't play them, and they're you know they're not on excerpt lists, they're not things that we studied at college, and it's really appalling. Yeah. Um, my my eldest son, when he was seven, in the back of the car, I had the radio on, and his little voice said, "Mummy, are there?" Are there no women composers? Yeah. I was like I was like, wow, he knows this at seven. It took me till my early twenties to even realise that. Right. Um, which is just appalling how much the canon has, has done that to us in, in music and obviously it has also done it in, in art. So um I'm I'm hoping to be more proactive in discovering more uh, compositions by women and um, and people of ethnic minorities. Yeah, I did a piece uh, pretty recently based on Alma Mahler, and that was an oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, for for me, I like to I use um, as a starting point these old, outdated printed materials usually, and I can completely uh-huh. relate to how you talk about you know well a piece that starts from a manual that was for a typewriter is very different than using a piece that was part of Alma's um, manuscript, you know? And so they each, if that is where you're starting and you want to honor that in some way, you build off that first rather than imposing my style on it is sort of the way I look at it. Um, But that's really interesting. Well, so I'm curious. I say, I know you have worked on a couple of things, like you've been asked to do some CD covers. Are there other ways that um, you've been able to overlap your music and, and art? Um, well, it's things are kind of percolating at the moment. <laughs> they're, they're stewing. Um, but yes, I have um, currently today, I've done three CD covers. Um, I've got another one in the pipeline. That's fun. Do the musicians give you carte blanche or do they start to say, no, I want it to be like this? No, I, I was given carte blanche. Um, the I did two for the Dunedin Ensemble. Um, and so they they gave me the first edits of their music of their recording. So it's, it's, it's a, they, they love the fact that it's of the, their actual recording. So I don't listen to somebody else. I listen to them and that's what's on the front of the cover. Um, and uh, I've one that I did for Shona Aitken and Shona actually, she's a um, incredible violinist. She's a jazz violinist. Um, she actually has synesthesia. She has direct synesthesia and she's fascinated by synesthesia. Um, 
so she has deliberate colors and that was actually felt a bit intimidating because i was like yikes yeah. i'm doing doing her cd cover of her music that's so personal to her and she yeah. has synesthesia i hope i i get something that fits and it was great because actually what i came up with she said completely fitted what she had been thinking and feeling and and she was really happy with it so yeah oh, that's was, so interesting yeah. and probably a big relief too <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> commissions yeah. always have that sort of a relief at the end but if it's in a situation where they you're hoping they see what you see that's interesting that's fun well and you're just becoming a regular on the bbc i mean i know you were on just a couple of weeks ago to talk about the movie tar starring kate blanchett which by the way we'll put a link in that that's a fun uh, episode to listen to but you're getting quite good at your radio and how yep. fun to say i'm on the bbc yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it was, um, yeah, they, they asked me because obviously I'm a musician um, to to just because it's this big deal of Kate Blanchett and the, the whole, well, it, actually just having talked about female composers, female conductors. Yeah, it was it was yeah. actually, you know, that. I, I wish I wish there was a female conductor that had Tar's kind of career, but not yet. Right. We're still far off parity. So, right. Right. Yep. Well, what's on the horizon? Is there anything else you can tell us about in, in either world? Like, actually, if people want to hear your music, what's the best place to send them to? Um, I wish it was my music, <laughs> as in me playing. Um, well, if they're in Scotland, if they're in Scotland, I play with um, all the or, um, professional orchestras in Scotland. And as I'm a freelancer, it basically I get called up and asked, you know, will you come in this week, that week, whatever. Sometimes it's last minute, sometimes it's planned in advance. Um, like for instance, this week I'm doing a completely crazy piece with the BBC, um, the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, where um, it's a piece by an Israeli composer um, called Stefan Prinz. And uh, I have to play my double bass with a soda can between the first two strings. And it's completely crazy. And there's all these different effects and different ways of playing our instruments. And yeah, it's it, it's not a normal week at work uh, this week. Yeah. Whereas next week, actually with the same orchestra, I, I'm playing Mahler's Ninth Symphony, which will be just mm. glorious. Um, mm. But yeah, it, it just various things. I also teach every weekend at the conservatoire here. So I have 15 students as well. So I kind of have three jobs. And as my yeah. mother says, I have four because I'm also a mum. <laughs> but of course, um, of course, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's what's kind of going on music-wise. As far as the arts concerned, I'm I'm in conversation with some composers. Um, I'm kind of at the starting point of talking to some uh, orchestras, and I would like to see my work um on like a big screen projected above an yeah. orchestra and ah. and and to get an or uh, an audience engaged to present it for an audience and have them sit and spend the time listening to a full movement whilst looking at one painting and then getting people more aware of this notion of synesthesia yeah. because you say four percent but i suspect that it's a lot higher than mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. that people are not 
aware that they actually have it. Right. Well, it's like you. you. It didn't occur to you. It was just the way you, yeah. it's the way you see things. Like, why, why does it have a name? And you assume everybody else says it the same way. Yeah. You just, you just assume that that's normal. And, yeah. uh, and it would be great, especially um, classical music concerts, the orchestral concerts, you know, the audience are all sat there all looking in the same direction, not really talking to each other. Whereas if you go to a band gig, you know, they're all talking to each other because they're all fans of the band and they're all like, oh, this and this and this. And I would love it if to have some audiences that would actually talk to each other and engage and be like, hey, do you see that? What do you see in there? And also to just encourage people to, the one thing about orchestral music that's different from, I mean, I love um, rock music and all sorts of different things. And I've played with, you know, Bell and Sebastian and I've done lots of great stuff. I've done, you know, I've, I've played, you know those kind of gigs too and they're they're fun but the difference with orchestral music is especially in in our modern day age is that it's it's a time where you have to switch off where you have to daydream where you have to be taken on a ride by this music and i think it's something that we should value more um because i think we could all use a bit more daydreaming time yeah. Oh, I love that. Thank you. I, that That's honestly very inspiring um, just to think about. So yeah. thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. This is very fun. I can't wait to see. I can visualize some of the things you were talking about, and I would love to be at a performance where your Wonderful. artwork was projected in the back. That would be fabulous. So um, we'll put links to, yeah, we'll put links to all the different places. Um, actually, what's your favorite place to send folks to see your visual work? Um, my visual work would be well Instagram and also just my website, um, okay. which is just KirstyMatheson dot com. So yeah, excellent. Um, I I don't have uh, I have a lot of things on there that are all available as prints. So it gives you an idea of of my work in general. But um, and then you know as I've got things available, I'll put them up. Fabulous. Well, thank you again. And gosh, good luck. And I can't wait to keep following where this all goes. Thank you so much, Christy. Okay, take care. Well, that wraps it up for us today. You can find Kirsty online at KirstyMatheson.com or on Instagram at Kirsty underscore Matheson underscore art. That's K-I-R-S-T-Y-M-A-T-H-E-S-O-N.com. So many intriguing thoughts from Kirsty's practice. I love the fearless ways she has always approached her art. From a six-foot painting in school to a 100-day challenge tackling a new piece of classical music each day. But the observation that really stuck out for me was her realization that her experience as an orchestral musician actually prepared her for her art career. I see this time and again with artists I get to interview. Their previous or sometimes current quotation mark, other job, is always influencing and preparing them for the greatest artwork they're creating now. I encourage you to take a moment to think about how your past experiences impact the work you are creating now. Understanding that connection can lead to great artist statements. Just saying. Until next time, stay kind, stay positive, and keep swimming. 